Welcome again, everybody, to the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I'm Dave. And Dave is on the phone yet again. And I know with the last show that uh, popped up today, we said that this was the last show of 2019. But uh, sorry to disappoint you and give you another show. But uh, this is the final show of 2019. And what do you think about that, Dave? Man, I think that's great. You know, it's fun to be able to jump on and do another show. I know we we had thought about, you know, ending it for the year, but you know what? We had another Monday and uh, two more days left in the year today and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So why not go ahead and take advantage of that and be sure to do another little recording, another show, because it's always good to get to visit with you, Adam. And I'm always thankful that we can work together to produce something that is not only fun and enjoyable for you and I, I think it's a useful tool for the church, and we've been dedicated to putting it out, and we've been dedicated to pouring in and doing the exciting research for the program. So it's always fun to me to get to do this, and uh, I am glad to have one more opportunity this year to get to join you in talking theology, apologetics, worldview analysis. Mm -hmm. Always fun for me. Yeah. So there you go, man. Yeah. So basically, yeah, tonight we just uh, we got that debate and I, there's uh, some stuff that went on today and we've got it all cleared up. We've got it all corrected um, and more than enough time for everybody to change a little couple of details on their calendars about it. But anyway, this is the uh, will be the last podcast and live cast before we hit the debate on January 6th. Um, so there was a little mishap, misunderstandings and things didn't happen the way that we they were going to happen. And we were told today that somebody called the library center and um, which is pretty awesome that uh, <laughs> they got a hold of us. The lady at the library center got a hold of us saying that somebody called them about the event and they were like, we don't have this on the books. So anyway, I'm glad to hear that um, somebody was calling to ask about the event anyway. So that's cool. It's gotten around. At least somebody's called uh, them. But anyway, they got back to us and said, uh, we don't have anything like that on our books. So today we've got it settled. It is at the library station on the north side of Springfield. So instead of the south side of Springfield, we'll be on the north side of Springfield. They have ample parking and we'll be in the Frisco room and the doors will open at six o'clock. And the debate will start promptly at 6.30. Does that sound right, Dave? 100%, man. That sounds right on. And, and so I'm excited to yeah. do that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. with that said, many, many good um, yeah, I had to redo the flyer. Um, so we will be posting that in the comments uh, whenever we can get around to it. Um, please share that flyer and uh, just let everybody know that there's a debate going on. Be there. Um, we want to keep on doing these debates and we'd like to have you guys there to interact because we have question and answer time. Uh, there's, you know, there'll be 30 minutes prior to the debate and then there'll be a little bit of time after the debate's over. And then you can always exit the room and continue the discussion, um, you know, that that evening and to your church time and your small groups, just whatever, um, to discuss this inerrancy issue. Um, and that's where, you know, these kind of things are geared toward evangelism and not only evangelism, but discipleship as well. So, um, please, uh, come out, please be a part of this and, uh, extend, you know, that maturity and who knowing who Christ is, um, about God's word and all these things. Cause this is the only way that we're going to combat, um, the things that are in this world that are trying to hold us down. So, and, and just as a reminder, the debate is a, of course, debate about 
not you just said it about the doctrine of inerrancy. We're not trying to like brutalize Phil. I like Phil. He's a really enjoyable guy. I really look forward to getting to sit across from him. I think he is probably one of the most intelligent folks that I've ever had the opportunity to debate. And so uh, with that said, you know, I'm just really glad that he's accepted this invitation. And I'm excited that I'm going to get to deal with him and talk about the resolution is inerrancy best understood as a scale or a range of concepts. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, for me anyways, when I think about inerrancy, I always jump back to the 1978 Chicago Statement. Yeah, And I think that it's always important, and I always want, before we begin to, because what we're going to basically do is Phil had a paper that was accepted at the annual meeting of Society for Pentecostal Studies. He presented a paper called Misleading Doctrine of Inerrancy, How We Impose Contemporary Understandings of Error on Scripture. And both Adam and I have read that. And so our plan is really to just kind of to, to work through that to the best of our ability. Yeah, and this today. will sort of give you guys, um, if you guys are coming to the debate, going to watch it live, um, what, however you're going to watch this debate, this this will give you, again, like we went through those uh, attributes of Scripture uh, before going into this debate. And so here's kind of like where the rubber meets the road. And so we want to give you guys a little bit more info on the other side and um, what you're going to see, hopefully to prime you anyway, to get your brain going, uh, give you some further information so you're not just there if if you've never um, studied inerrancy and read about um, why it's important and definitions and all this stuff, um, whenever you get there, you're not so um, everything going over your head. Hopefully what we can do here is prime you and get you ready to uh, put your head in the discussion. And um, so those questions are awesome. And so that is, I mean, it's really just though the discussion um, flows uh, much more richer and deeply and we can sh we can give each other that uh, brotherly love that we should give in this debate. That's right. And, and again, that's the one thing. It's really nice because while, again, Phil and I really agree on a lot of things, this is a place where we disagree. And I think the reason we need to deal with this topic is because. As Geisler has stated, there is a lot of contemporary attacks on the doctrine of inerrancy. People reframe the meaning of it. People decide that inerrancy has some type of meaning that is floatable and movable. And that's exactly what I've found in Phil. And so while I think, again, Phil has a lot of really good uh, positions and many positions that I admire, his issue when it comes to inerrancy and dealing with it as what I believe Scripture has demonstrated is inconsistent. And so, uh, with that said, you ready to start unpacking this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can. Uh, right. you, you're the one that's a lot more familiar with this. I mean, I started reading it yesterday. Read it a few times, and you know, there's some things that I know I can uh, throw in there. Um, but you know, Dave, you really probably have this paper down. So, if you want to provide us a starting point, um, yeah. Go so for I it. just want to. Start with the um, with the title, misleading doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, the doctrine of inerrancy is only misleading because people will say that inerrancy means one thing. Mm -hmm. For example, they'll say, "Well, all of Scripture is is true," but then they'll go on to qualify what that means. Right? They'll say, yeah. "Well, Scripture is is true in all things when it talks to spirituality." Well, what happened again in 1978 is people said, "You know what? We need to quit flowing all over the place." We need to have an understanding of inerrancy that is built upon and founded in Scripture. Yeah. 
Now, again, we talked about this last week, but again, I think it's so important that individuals who are not familiar with what it means for the Bible to be inerrant understand this concept. The doctrine of the Trinity was articulated most clearly and firstly in Scripture, but because Arius could take every single text that was presented to him at the Council of Nicaea and still say, oh yeah, I believe that, he could essentially twist those individual pieces of Scripture to say, oh no, I believe what Scripture says, but I just deny that there is one God who exists as three persons. And so the church said, well, this is what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, if you look at anything written in the 19th and early 20th century, what you see is people will say, Scripture is inspired. It wasn't until about the 60s that people began to use the term inerrant, even in the writings of the fundamentals. And if you're not familiar with the fundamentals, at the start of the 20th century, a group of evangelicals got concerned with modern liberal trends within evangelicalism. And one of the major attacks was the attack on the truthfulness of Scripture. Someone might say, for example, Schleiermacher might say, well, I agree with the idea that Scripture is true or inspired, but I think that Scripture contradicts itself, and God is the more beautiful mysteries of God are revealed in the contradictions, right? Mm -hmm. And so people began to use that, and they twisted the term of inspired or inspiration. So when Burkhoff writes in the 30s his systematic theology and talks about Scripture being inspired, he's using a terminology for his time that was accepted as inerrancy. Now, we're seeing in people like Mike Lycona, uh, for example, I think he's one of the greatest examples. He'll say, well, yeah, I believe I can sign the Chicago Statement, but I'm going to reframe it to mean what I want it to mean. And so people will join ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I believe in inerrancy, but I believe in, and again, a different scale of inerrancy. Well, that's not what Packer and Sproul and Geisler intended when they wrote the 19, when they framed the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. They were the main three framers of the 78th Statement. Mm -hmm. So when we say that the doctrine of inerrancy is misleading, it's only misleading because you either accept a person like Lycona who would say, oh yeah, I agree with inerrancy, but, you know, Matthew was writing in uh, Greco-Roman biography and so when he says in Matthew that the dead rose, he really didn't mean that the dead literally rose. And Lycona would say, and in John 18, where Jesus says, I am, and everyone fell down, well, John didn't really mean that. He was putting that in because he was writing in the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Mm -hmm. And so he was a product of his time, writing in his time, and therefore those things didn't objectively occur, but the Bible's still inerrant. Yeah. That's the twisting of the doctrine of inerrancy, and that's why this is a problem, and it's a problematic view. I, you know, again, I was just looking at a uh, one of my favorite Geisler texts uh, that I have here, Geisler and Roach, and one of the things that people will say over and over again 
is that inerrantists add more qualifications to inerrancy. The only reason that we have to go back and deal with the doctrine of inerrancy is because people twist Mm -hmm. the idea that Scripture can be true in all that it affirms. And so, again, I would just contend, even with Phil's title, that the doctrine of inerrancy is not misleading, and we don't impose contemporary understandings of error on Scripture. Christians don't do that. Someone who is against God's Word will look, for example, at places like, and we just talked about this before the program, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, as cited in Matthew chapter 2, verse 25, and say, see, uh, when... When Matthew wrote that and quoted Hosea, he was proof texting. That's yeah. not what no. Hosea. That's not what Matthew was doing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can we can wait to get there, but you know. So basically, from what you're saying there is, you know, you've got Lycona and Schleiermacher. You've got all these people that have made a definition of what, say, inerrancy or the term infallibility, inspired. We've got all these different terms out there. And so what we are really seeking is what is the definition of inerrancy? Yes. And so whenever we look at this paper here, it says the vast majority. Oh, I'll go back. Um, I suggest thinking of inerrancy as a scale or a range where one extreme says that that every single letter and period must be exact. And the other regards scripture as mostly or entirely myth. The vast majority of Pentecostals and other Christians will fall in between these two extremes. While many people will still argue for stronger or weaker variants of inerrancy, this scale approach should help clarify discussion. And so one of these things when we're talking about inerrancy um, and misleading doctrines and stuff like that, you know, right now we've already seen at the outset that this this his this definition of inerrancy that we're going to deal with is going to be based on what people do with the text not the text itself. And that's the problem is, is where are you going to get your definition? You know, you have um, this denominational sort of creedal um, statement about what inerrancy is, or you have this group of people over here, this uh, seminary professor over here. um, And we're just, you know, are we going to try to make a middle ground of um, enlightenment philosophy um, logic <laughs> trying to transcend ourselves? Or are we going to have to go to Revelation? And and like we've been discussing with the attributes of Scripture, you know, which circle are you going to join? They're both going to be circular at some level. And when right. we get down to the starting point, what is the major presupposition of everything? Is it man's autonomous reasoning or is it going to be God revealed truth to where when it comes to inerrancy, that is a presupposition of all predication to where if it is not there, then we can just say goodbye to logic. We can say goodbye to rationality, um, at least as, as a uni- universal ethical thing. Um, That's right. And so what we're dealing with here now is inerrancy. A definition of it is going to be trying to take all these different inerrancy views and then try to find a middle ground that best fits um, the presupposed evidence. Yes, sir. That's it. Right, right on. And so, uh, just as you begin in the paper, and I'm just going to kind of read from the paper. And again, our program tonight is going to be a little bit briefer than we normally do. And it's not because we're trying to be, you know, problem people or being real brief, but we just wanted to give you kind of a taste of what the debate will be like and where things are going to begin. And just as I got into the paper, like the first few lines here, 
began to jump out with to me as a presuppositionalist. Because what you have here, right up from the start, he says, uh, a doctrine of inerrancy has long been a part of evangelical and Pentecostal traditions. Peter Enns has observed that inerrancy is encoded in the evangelical DNA. So here is the thing. When we look at the at the proposition for the debate, has is inerrancy best understood as a scale or range of concepts? To argue for a scale or a range of concepts presupposes that there is an objective standard yeah. along the scale or within the range. But then he does something that I think we're going to find as a major contention in the debate. He says, one of the valuable things about philosophy is its ability to do meta-analysis or discipline criticism. Now, here is where mm. Phil and I are really going to have an issue, and it actually does root back to the authority of Scripture, because yeah. as we talked about last week, there's a multifaceted approach to the doctrine of inerrancy. Yeah. The doctrine of inerrancy hinges or is crystallized most effectively by the sufficiency, authority, clarity, and the necessity of Scripture. And so when you begin to knock off one of those edges, the beautiful crystal that is inerrancy, that is a result of those four pillars, becomes problematic. So we now see that Phil is going to contend in this debate from a position that philosophically we can do a meta-analysis of theological positions. Mm -hmm. And that's where things become extremely problematic. Because and this is going to be a condition because, like, you know, we've already talked about um, what philosophy is at the very basis of what he's going to go with. And then what is your philosophy, Dave? You know, like, what is your starting point? What's his starting point? And that's going to be the issue um, where, where somebody's going to overshoot the moon. That is 100 percent correct. 100 percent right. And that's where we're going to have the issue, uh, at least in my mind. We're going to have a major issue because what's going to happen is when we begin to deal with the doctrine of inerrancy and upon whose authority are we able to analyze what inerrancy means, his standard for coming to a, because he's going to have to come to an objective position on what inerrancy is in order to provide that a scale or range of concepts can be regulated against anything. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And so if we start from this idea that we have to go outside of Scripture in order to analyze Scripture, we've already started from the wrong spot. And so one thing you won't see me doing is chasing off on that idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to go back to the, the paper, he tells us in the paper that First, he's going to argue, despite efforts to clearly define inerrancy, it is a vague term in that it means different and sometimes contradictory things to different Christians. False. Just because someone claims inerrancy and then says, oh, but I reject the objective reality that jo Joshua knocked down the walls of Jericho, that's not inerrancy. Because inerrancy is defined in Scripture. It is inherently linked to God's character and God's nature. We talked about this last week. 
And so for someone to say, oh, I believe in er I believe in inerrancy, but I don't believe that scripture accurately recorded what happened yeah. in, in Joshua. That individual is not one who is an inerrantist. They are just claiming that they are. Yeah, and, that's and so, so we, I mean, because he goes in on that, you know, talking about the uh, walls of uh, Jericho coming down, right? And so, you yep. know, he kind of mentions here that, you know, science, you know, archaeology, um, you know, hasn't, you know, it'd be more like they were actually in a camp and they didn't have walls and we haven't found anything and all that kind of stuff. And and it's one of those things of, well, I'm going to believe scripture that there was a city of Jericho and that it had walls. The walls are important because God told them to walk around it every day and then he That's made right. them fall down for a purpose. Um, if the walls aren't there, then that story goes away. If that story goes away, then pretty much everything falls. <laughs> I mean, so That's it's right. either Jericho's walls fell or the Bible falls. Um, That's right. and so, yes, we are on that molar, which, you know, he kind of he, he goes into this paper talking about molar uh, being that, you know, all or nothing approach. And that's where Dave and I are. You know, it's it's yes. it's all of God. It's all authoritative or it's not. And our faith is in vain. Um, so, he says yeah. that and he says, uh, you know, his second point is in this paper, I will argue that some points on the scale of inerrancy are flawed and or would be would have been unacceptable to the fathers and to New Testament authors. The extremes are obviously unacceptable to Orthodox Christians, as Scripture must be true in more than a mythological sense for Christianity to be true. And a knowledge of languages and translations quickly shows that not every jot or tittle is left unaltered by the process of translation. Translation. Well, here, where, this, yeah, this is the transmission translation issue. And so I would tell you that the contention of individuals like Adam and I and anyone who affirms the 1978 Chicago statement, we would contend that Scripture in the autographs is inerrant. Mm -hmm. Again, the locus of inspiration is not the person writing it, right? Mm -hmm. We'll say sometimes Matthew was inspired. Actually, it's his text. It's the production of the text. The text itself is inspired and inerrant. Mm -hmm. And we have God's inerrant word because he has preserved it for us in such a way so that we know we have it. Again, Travis did an excellent job of this and because Travis and I have agreed on this and talked about this in the past. Our position is uh, real simple. It's like you have a thousand piece puzzle and 1,100 pieces. Yeah. You don't have anything that is not there. We again, this is uh, Bart Ehrman. Whenever you talk to, uh, you know, whenever we talk about another debate over this issue, um, yeah. James White and Bart Ehrman um, had the debate. And Bart Ehrman, even though he, whenever he got into textual criticism, uh, he was a Christian turned agnostic now. Be, and he says it's because of textual criticism, but he does say that we have all the original readings. And so yes. in his scholarship, even though we have all the original readings and we're just tweaking the text, as he would say, um, he's still not satisfied with the story, I guess. You know, there, yes. there's other reasonings behind that. It's not just textual criticism, but, you know, it's it's recognized. There's you know, if you want if you want to go evidential, there is evidence. But again, the whole point is the heart issue that we've got to deal with. Yeah, right on. Uh, then just to kind of continue on in some of this, he says. 
the extremes are like I said, the extremes are obviously unacceptable to Christian to Orthodox Christians. The scripture must be true uh, in more than mythological sense for Christianity be, to be true. Uh, we talked about the original languages, and then he says, uh, however, many more moderated, sophisticated, and nuanced views of inerrancy are still problematic as what it means to be without error in contemporary culture is often different from what it means to the New Testament authors. So the problem there isn't with the New Testament. The problem is with those who are imposing standards on Scripture that would have been foreign to the original readers. Let's jump back to that uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 25, because I think that's a, a key yeah. piece for us. And so Matthew 2, 25, again, uh, if you're not familiar with it, and, and it's great, and Matthew, excuse me, I said Matthew 2, 25, Matthew 2, 15. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Matthew is quoting from Hosea 11, 1. Now, what a modern person might argue is, ah, he's just proof texting Hosea 11, 1. But that's not what Matthew was doing. No, not at all. Matthew's knowledge of that verse in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and again, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience mm-hmm. who would have been aware and really familiar with, he, with Hosea 11.1. 1. And even as D.A. Carson notes in the original languages and Douglas Stewart notes in the original languages, there's like a double entendre in that statement. And so when Matthew looks back at the stand of Scripture, he can see and pull from Scripture messianic prophecies because he's working through a Christocentric lens that would point to what, uh, excuse me, how God was revealing to the Jews who the Messiah was and what the Messiah was going to do. In fact, what Matthew is demonstrating there is that Jesus is the greater Moses. Mm-hmm. When Jesus comes out of Egypt, he comes out to complete what Moses as a man could not complete, and that is the salvation of God's people, yeah. the kingdom that would reign forever. Yeah, and I mean, the, the big thing to me is, you know, whenever we do this, yeah, he's not proof texting, texting so there was no Hosea 11.1. Whenever right. Matthew was writing this. And so what would it trigger a person um, that was familiar with the text? I mean, either would have it memorized or would have a copy of the the uh, Septuagint or whatever, you know, whatever text there was um, written down. Um, it would trigger you to go back and be like, does he really fulfill this? Like, how does he fulfill this? And so here's the problem. So you read it and it's like, well, Hosea is not... Uh, He's he's not messianic, and you go oh contradiction contradiction. You're just quick to flail your hands up, and unlike being like uh, or Jacob and wrestling with the Lord, right? Yeah, we need to be like that, and we need to wrestle with the text and go wait a second. This is God's word; it can't err. If it does, it's a problem. So if I'm going to be quick to throw up my hands. I should be quick to leave my church. I should be quick to um, just do whatever the heck I want. Right. Or what can you do? Slow down and you can go. I'm going to read starting at, say, 11. Since we have those 
textual helps now. They were not, they're not in the originals. Right. Um, and just, and read it. And so he's, you know, it's God speaking. It's not Hosea speaking. It's him. Uh, he wrote it down. Hosea was given this word from God, but this is God speaking. And so just like the apostle said of themselves, you know, nothing that um, they had and they ever said about these things was their idea. It was from the Holy Spirit and the same Holy Spirit that wrote the New Testament wrote the Old Testament. This is the word of God. And so whenever we look at that, we need to go. God is right. God is correct. Matthew is correct, because if you're going to say Matthew contradicts himself, then the Holy Spirit contradicts himself. Then God is a liar. So therefore, you don't want to go that far. So right what you on. do is you wrestle with the text and you read it and you go, he's recapitulating how um, he took his people out of Egypt, um, how he's going to, you know, how they have left him, how they have hated him and rebelled against him and how he is going to remain faithful to them despite their rebellion because they're his people, they're his covenant people. And that is the major portion that you should understand because Matthew is a covenantal document because it starts showing Christ as the covenantal seed of Abraham, the covenantal King through the line of David. Um, all these, these, these are typological issues that are being right. expressed here. The, there's types and anti-types type. Jesus is the anti-type of these things. So, you know, what is the problem here? Well, you're probably not covenantal. That's why you're yeah. having all these problems. If you have the covenantal hermeneutic, which is the way God has related to us, um, then these things are going to make sense. And if the covenantal hermeneutic is wrong, then I'll just go home and do whatever I want. Right. Because then right. all things are permissible. <laughs> right. This is just That's random right. happenstance. I'm not going to borrow from that random happenstance worldview to then come to the conclusion that eh, contradictions are OK, apparently, because um, back then they were OK. And it's like, no, 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 no. And then using that I mean, I, 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 we're doing a short show, so I'm going to condense some of this stuff from the paper that I wrote that, you know, it gets me. It's, but it's just that uh, Christocentric sort of hermeneutic, which has its merits um, in a way. But then you can't take that too far to become a red letter society person. Forget the rest of the Bible, just whatever Jesus said. Right. Can't go that far. Yeah. But, you know, the major issue of talking about scripture is relating it to Christ. Christ was human. He was divine. The Bible is human. It is divine. Right. They're both authoritative. They're both God. You know, the Bible isn't God, but it is God's word. Jesus was human and divine. He, Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity um, and, and things like that. So we can utilize that, but we can't go too far. Um, like he says in the paper, um, but we need to realize that, you know, if you have a problem with the text, it is not the text, it is you. And that's what the problem is with autonomous man trying to reason this stuff. Um, it just, it goes crazy. So, you know, you need to go back and go, how would this trigger the Jewish person? Um, these prophecies and are they prophecies? Is, is Hosea prophesying Christ? No, but is there a meaning that Christ fulfills because isn't he the covenantal seed? Isn't he the covenantal king? And instead of his flight to Egypt being the fulfillment of scripture, so you're trying to find that where does it say in the Old Testament that Jesus would go to Egypt? No, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're, you need to look how Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. That's right. And again, and so it's wrestle very, with the text. Don't yeah, say it as, as a problem and say it's okay. And as Stuart really points out well in his commentary, and Douglas Stewart's commentary is an extremely useful. When I preached through Hosea, 
uh, two years ago, uh, almost two years ago now, uh, on Wednesday nights, when you look at Hosea, you see all types of messianic prophecies, but also prophecies about Israel coming back and about Mm. God reconciling Israel. And so when God is reconciling Israel, how does he ultimately reconcile Israel? Through his son, who he loves. And while Israel is his son, it's very interesting how five times in the first two chapters of Matthew, the author refers to Jesus as God's son, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's being very intentional in demonstrating the greater fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Why was that? Because it was a covenantal people, and God had spoken covenantally Mm. into who they were, declaring what would happen. Um, Just to kind of move on a little bit more in his paper, if that's okay. I don't want to... Like and Adam, help we me out. We can go forever because, on this, <laughs> um, dude. We've already passed the thirty minutes, uh, so we might we might need to come to. Uh, uh, let me kind of move on to yeah. uh, kind of close us up here. Um, he says on page five, many people argue the problem is that there are numerous apparent conflicts between biblical text and external evidence, as Peter N says about Joshua's conquest. If the Bible indeed claims the Jericho walls fell, then there were actually walls that actually fell. The archaeological record of the fall of Jericho in Joshua 6, however, is a well-known problem for this assertion since the overwhelmingly dominant position of scholarship is that the city of Jericho was at most a small settlement without the walls of Joshua. It's interesting that while he might say that that's the overwhelming dominant view, Here's the problem. That's not the only view. Mm. And further, we maybe have never been looking for Jericho in the right place anyway. And I love uh, when Moeller deals with this exact issue. He notes that Kathleen Keenan conducted research on her theory about the destruction of Jericho in 1550 B.C. And... It has been largely discounted. In other words, uh, Kathleen Kennan conducted research, and there is research available to demonstrate, as recent as the 30s, that there is evidence that consistently uh, demonstrates the truthfulness of the conquest of Jericho. But it's just been dismissed. Why is that? Well, ENS isn't just citing believing evangelicals. Ends is picking and choosing the individuals that he wants to affirm as scholars who hold this position. And so if you go to a dominant, unbelieving group of scholars, they're going to be looking for every opportunity to dismiss whatever evidence is there. Why? Because they have a prior commitment to exactly a different position. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things that if you look at it again, circle for circle. Yes. Um, it's somebody, I mean, it's, it's the inconsistent Christian position because the circle is, it starts with God and his revelation. Um, if you're going to then, you, basically what what the natural world wants to do is you've got, you've got uh, chance on top, time chance, 
that's that's the uh, that's God pretty much. It's an impersonal God, but it's God. Um, where then the Christian, what it, what the Christian is trying to do in this sort of philosophy is you've got God, and then abstracted from God is all this stuff. And then yeah. it gets to us and we're trying to figure out all this stuff to find out more about God. And it's like, no, no, the, it's the Vantillian model of, you know, God and then us in a circle underneath the circle of God. And then revelation is a straight line between us and him um, and his condescension uh, through covenant on that. And so, you know, why? Why is the inerrancy debate still around? It's because people are in rebellion. Um, people don't want those things to be correct. They want to um, be able to bow to the world and, and whatever the world says. And we're seeing it. Um, we're going it, to basically it's a Christian that should start with God and believe Jericho had walls. <laughs> then they're going to go to secular scholarship from the a priori, a priori commitment that, you know, our timelines not even, aren't even acceptable to be compatible together when we're talking about history. Yet yeah, we're willing to, you know, Peter now is willing to bend to their scholarship and it is all to appease the world to try to just bring them in. And that's not going to get you anywhere. Well, and one of the things that uh, and I want to kind of summarize this because we wanted to have a little bit yeah. uh, shorter program. I promised you that. Uh, so essentially what's going to happen is when we meet next week, what I expect is a lot of good dialogue, but it's going to come down to where do you see God's nature being linked to God's revelation? And how strongly is it linked? And how able is God to preserve that? Yeah. Because with God, if there is not an objective truth, then there is not objective lies right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. any hint of error is error and so it comes down to can god speak without stuttering and the truth is he tells us that he can he shows us that he can and if we begin to question his ability to do so we've now submitted to a nature of sin where we have a god who we cannot trust to speak to us, mm -hmm. reality. Yeah. So one of the things I know, uh, you, it's going to come down to, well, if you say that, if it's the all or nothing approach, you're going to inject your interpretation. No. Anyone that I know that affirms the doctrine of inerrancy says it's not up to man's interpretation. Mm -hmm. That's why we let scripture interpret scripture. And when you don't, that's when you have problems with, a text like yeah, and this Matthew is 2, and this is exactly what we see. So I mean, the ironic thing in here is that this is his interpretation. Um, to say that uh, Luke um, contradicted himself in the stories of Paul, um, you know, we can go long. I don't care, <laughs> but just to, just uh, I'd to probably be, better not. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we could go, but just no, just looking at those two yeah. things and saying that um, basically error. Then wasn't what's considered error now is more precise, and error then wasn't such a big deal. And they're playing fast and loose with the text, and it's okay. Therefore, we can sort of play fast and loose with the text now, right? Um, sort of the gist of the idea. Um, but anyway, it's one of those things. Well, for one thing, it's already assuming that there's a, con a contradiction there, and not 
a harmonization and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, basically then that would say, you know, he's interpreted it as a contradiction and, and it just becomes inter his interpretation versus your interpretation versus the next guy's. And so basically his, his view, in my opinion, does not hold up and will not lead to any sort of certainty. Um, you might not like certainty. I know Peter Ince doesn't like certainty and calls it an idol of people like Dave and I, and um, which is, you know, how can he actually objectively say that's true? <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> So, um, but you know, Paul definitely had certainty. And so I guess Paul was an idolater as well. I'm going to err on the side of Paul, um, not Peter Ince yeah. <laughs> in that situation. So, but yeah, you'll, you'll see, um, you know, just a concluding state from, from me anyway, you'll see a consistent Christian position versus an inconsistent one. And I, you know, Dave, I wish you um, the best of God's providence to uh, point that out, um, that we start with God. Um, that there must be these presuppositions that we can totally admit and be fine with. And this is that rest that I think um, one of those intellectual rests that we can find um, in Christ being the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And we can rest um, holding our thoughts captive to Christ. We can truly say, I don't know, and it's okay on certain things, but we know certain things. And I think Saiten Rugenkate says it best. I don't know everything, but, you know, I, I know certain things for certain, right? That's and, right. Uh, we can know those certain things for certain. And that is what makes the person complete for every good work. So, right. That's right. Well, brother, uh, I could go on and on and mm -hmm. on. And I've enjoyed so much getting to visit with you about this. What I would say is I hope I didn't pollute uh, the well. Uh, I really like Phil. He And you will all find mm -hmm. those of you who are going to come, those of you who are going to watch, if you cannot be in the library station at 6 30 and you want to step in a few minutes late feel free mm -hmm. to do so uh we invite you to do that we want to encourage you to tune in through the tag your it podcast adam will have the live cast going for us mm -hmm. and you'll be able to watch it i would encourage you to share the podcast with your friends as always we love any feedback if you can give us feedback on itunes man we need as many uh five-star reviews as possible um, share this podcast with a friend through social media, send it through a text, share it over iTunes or CastBox. Uh, we've just been so fortunate, man. We're going to be starting into our third year of podcasting, mm -hmm. which is way cool. Uh, we've got a neat year lined up and uh, it'll start off with a bang with the debate and uh, a lot of really fun projects uh, in the hopper, um, some that we're not able to completely share with everyone on the air, but uh, it is going to be a cool deal. Um, yeah. So come and uh, bring your questions because we'll have a time of Q&A. Uh, it is at the library station in the Frisco room. And yes. so you get to the library station. It's right beside Panera. Um, ask for get yourself some coffee in Panera and uh, jump into the Frisco room. And catch out or catch a debate brought right. to you by Tag Your It, the podcast. And the Missouri Baptist Apologetics Network and Be Civil, Be Heard. So I want to thank uh, everybody that's done that. And thank you guys for uh, coming with us one more time this year. We hope that you had a wonderful time with family and friends around the uh, understanding of the gospel made flesh. Um, the new covenant, um, all these sort of covenantal ideas. I pray um, that you guys had a good time and uh, really enjoyed each other. 
um, being in Christ uh, with your church family as well. Um, and as we go into this new year, uh, I just have to say, uh, spend it reading your Bible and not dropping the ball. Um, if you haven't noticed that in your life yet, that we start the year off dropping the ball. Don't celebrate with the world, celebrate with the word. So <laughs> I hope you guys have uh, had a wonderful year we have, and we'll go into this new year, uh, January 6th. At the library station, Frisco Room, 6 o'clock doors, 6.30, starting the debate. Come in late if you need to, and we will still welcome you. But with that said, this is the Tag Year Podcast. I'm Ray Ray. I'm Dave. And Soli. Deo. Gloria. Gloria.